And we're back. We're here live with Renters Radio. I'm Lauren Pespiza. I'm sitting here with Evan George and a special in-studio guest, Boston City Councilor Michelle Wu, uh, here to discuss her latest op-ed, The Powers of the City Council, Abolishing the BPDA, and Defunding the Police. I know you wanted to start, Evan. Yes. So I know you listened to our episode, uh, I think, last week, and we really did a deep dive into the budget. I don't want to uh, belabor it too much, but I kind of just wanted to get your sense as somebody who was there. So what was it like leading up to that vote? What were some of the pressures that you were facing? And why did you ultimately decide to vote against the budget? You know, I've been on the council now, this is my seventh year. And so seven budget cycles of of memories and experience and understanding what gets said, sort of what promises are made, and then and then looking back on on six years before this as well. So this year was markedly different in in a number of ways. You know, of, of course there was unprecedented levels of outreach to the council from the public. We had activists and residents and and constituents out in the streets demanding change, and also reaching out to you know tens of thousands of emails. We've never never gotten that type of outreach before. And so there's a, a sort of basic responsibility of, are we representing our constituents? Are we responding to this moment? Um, but there was also outreach on the other side to pass the budget in unprecedented ways before of city employees, you know, junior level city employees reaching out out of fear that their jobs were being uh, potentially cut, having gotten that information from superior, from their supervisors, um, and a lot of pressure from nonprofits and others who, you know, and, and looking back on the records, have been connected with um, donations from the uh, rece- receiving donations from the Boston Resiliency Fund. So there was just this level of um, outreach in all different ways, but matched, you know, an effort to match what was happening in the streets with a, a real, you know, what what frustrated me, made me incredibly angry, a, a real level of fear mongering um, from the part of the administration too. And so you mentioned something, and I kind of promised Lauren I wouldn't do too many follow-ups with the budget just because we did spend two hours on it, but that you were receiving um, from junior-level employees were reaching out to you. And one of the levels of my frustration was that we really didn't know who was going to be affected if there was a shutdown. And we found out from a staffer that basically you were shown a spreadsheet a few days before from the mayor's office kind of outlining who's going to lose their jobs and all this. So to be clear, not all of us got that. Okay. I did not get it. I think they know that if I'd gotten it, I might have turned right around and that would have been, <laughs> would have been out there. But I mean, even that is just an example of how much distortion was happening of the reality. You know, we were, I think it's undeniable that had the events of the last four weeks, six weeks happened back in February instead of May into June, that a majority of the council would have said, we need to respond in a different way than we're responding. But the majority that we had some people felt like we were out of time, even though we were technically not out of time. And I think there was disagreement about whether taking a little bit of extra time was A, realistic, B, wise, um, C, you know, going to lead to something different. I know, just from, again, from six previous cycles in the budget, that that is the fastest and most effective way to make sure that we are delivering as counselors, is to, to have that public leverage backing us up and we had never had it like this before and so to let that go it just was an incredible slap in the face i think to to so many activists um but at the same time 
we were not having an honest conversation about what would happen if we voted no on the budget. We were not having an honest conversation about how the state goes to a, a temporary provisional 112th budget regularly yep. um, and how we were not committing to 12 months of a 112th budget, but just a little more time to evaluate and have that conversation, how we would have had it if that happened back in February. Oh, absolutely. And so in response to the budget uh, vote, and we'll call it the moment, um, I think the mayor, uh, Martin Walsh, I always like that when he writes his name Martin Walsh when he publishes things, but we'll just, we'll just used to call him Marty. Um, he announced three big changes that, as, his, as what he was trying to do as, you know, meet the moment. One of which was the creation of a new cabinet position. The other was a zoning amendment to try to fight back against some of the displacement. And we'll talk about housing in a little bit. But the third was this racial equity fund. And I know you wrote an op-ed that I have here addressing it. So to start us off on this issue, can you talk about what this fund is and what are some of your problems with it? Yeah, I got to the point where I felt like it was important to speak out. And this is somewhat about this particular announcement and fund repeating a pattern that we've seen now. I think it's this was the seventh fund that's been created in the last three or so months. Um, each time the announcement meant to signal some sort of big movement happening uh, within City Hall, a response to the moment, as you say. Um, but this fund was, was like the Boston Resiliency Fund, one where we're creating this um, mixed set of incentives by putting City Hall and specifically the mayor and his administration as gatekeeper to private money flowing through now the mayor's office. And so the fund, like the Resiliency Fund, is set up to solicit donations from private donors, corporations, and individuals, and then through some decision-making process, decide how to allocate the money raised out to nonprofits. The Resiliency Fund you know, has been touted as a, a way to direct 32 plus million dollars, but we saw very clearly in the budget that when City Hall was in charge of allocating that, we, it, it changed the political process. It directly influenced who felt comfortable speaking up, what they were saying, who, who didn't feel comfortable speaking up. And I heard that publicly and privately from nonprofits and, and from others. And so, you know, you can argue that the Resiliency Fund is something that it addressed an extraordinary need in a, an unprecedented, unexpected moment. I actually think that it's not serving any need that our nonprofits weren't stepping up to do. And there was a role for the city to push you know, philanthropy or what, you know, through other channels. But the resiliency fund is now about, okay, we're going to address structural racism through an ongoing commitment to fundraising and dispersing funds and potentially permanently changing the political process. And I have two follow-ups on that. And Lauren hit me when I'm talking too much. Uh, so the first is you brought up nonprofits. And when we were doing our episode last week, we had a caller call in who said that a friend of his who works for one of these big nonprofits, uh, that person almost resigned because they found out that their director was lobbying council members to vote yes to pass this budget. And you wrote something in your op-ed uh, that I really, really appreciated. Basically, just, of course, you know it. This is for the audience who like podcasts and can't read op-eds. But not only does this create pressure on corporations and individuals with business before the city to, to donate, going further, nonprofit organizations must compete for dollars that now flow through the city. 
taking care to maintain favor with the Walsh administration, facing pressure to speak up or stay silent on the right issues. And that was something you just addressed. So because a lot of people, when they hear nonprofit, they think, oh, that's completely outside of City Hall. That's outside the political process. But there really is a intense relationship between nonprofits and the city. Can you elaborate on that from your um, experience in the city council and really just stressing again why this fund is problematic in its relationship with nonprofits? Yeah. And it's, it, again, it's not it's not just this particular racial equity fund. It's it's resiliency fund. It's any time we are setting up the city to one redirect money that private dollars that could be flowing through organizations with much more skill in disbursement and accountability and that kind of expertise. You know, I think we could have a separate conversation about philanthropy and um, the you know, what, what comes from that. Um, but when the city does it, when city government does it, we are creating pressures that we saw in the budget, right? There were numerous, um, I, I like to hear from everyone, right? So, so my job, whoever wants to reach out, I'm grateful. Even when, the, when people are angry, even when they disagree, that is, that is the role is to receive that outreach. But it was curious and, and, and concerning to see so many emails or outreach that said, you know, on suggestion of this or, so, this or that city employee, um, I'm asking you to support the budget because I believe in, you know, food access or whatever, or um, supporting residents experiencing homelessness. And then when you go back to the spreadsheet of who received a donation, finding that that was that was linked, and not that, not that I'm not ascribing ill intention on any part to to any of the the nonprofit executive directors or those who reached out, but there. There is a subtle um, changing of the dynamic when people know that when they respond to City Hall in a certain way, it comes with a check versus when they don't. And when then they're later called on to do something, um, maybe it's not a big deal to them, but, but it just, there's a, there's, it, it's corrupting is, is what it is. Uh, so like that's a great like ending word or phrase for it because as you just said it's not that we are saying these nonprofits are evil or that these local um, these employees are like acting with ill intention it's they are facing a realistic reaction to pressure which is I'm gonna lose my funding we're gonna lose our jobs and the people that we cater towards won't be helped I have to not speak out about this issue or maybe I need to like rub elbows with Marty Walsh or some of his handpicked people because I know that is where our funding stream is. So it creates a subconscious pressure. When, in fact, it's not that, I mean, I would feel, I think it'd be a slightly different conversation. I think we would still have it, but it would be a slightly different conversation if it were, if City Hall weren't doing this, this wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. But it's not that this is the only option. There are plenty of other better options, better ways of getting much needed funding to organizations doing the work. Um, but when City Hall steps in, we suck it all over through government in this way that is that is also harmful. So that was actually one of my questions was, what do you propose we do um, to improve racial equity uh, as this uh, it seems like it's actually serving its purpose? Right. And, and there's, a, there's a, a long history of government in general and the city of Boston in particular. Um, I, I love Twitter because the most random of, of information flows your way, but a professor who is writing a book about the history of Boston city government and these funds that were created to really say that we were doing something. And, you know, not, not every dollar makes a little bit of difference, but when you are doing that, when you're stepping into that world, instead of owning up to the real structural change that sits solely 
on the shoulders of, of those in power in government to do, that is harmful. And so um, in this case, yes, we need more funding to communities of color. We need more funding to Black-led organizations and Black and Brown communities. But there was also a, a new Commonwealth Fund set up led by Black and Brown business leaders. If the mayor wanted to make sure there was more funding, direct it that way, right? Speak up, support that organization. And then what we do on city, city time, what we do with city energy is change the procurement process, right? Introduce equity in how we spend city money. You know, the, the num we crunch the numbers out of all the millions of emergency COVID dollars spent in this by the city of Boston, one business owned right. by a, one Boston business owned by a person of color got a contract. That was it. And that, that it was about a 1.8% of the total spend went to that business. Um, in fact, all Boston-based businesses only made up 4.75% of that total spend. What else can we do? Zoning, planning, development, right? Going back to the affordable housing question, um, our schools really thinking about deep structural change there instead of, you know, recently we saw a task force commission that had been set up to review the exam for the exam schools, came out with their hard recommendation and then Two days later, you know, it, it turns out that, again, it was all set, you know, feel, they felt feels like it was all set up for show. Um, you know, there, there's a long list of things. The city budget, right? That itself should be a three point something billion dollar racial equity fund right there. <laughs> right. I love how you said uh, back to the affordable housing question that I, I don't even think we've asked yet. No, not yet. That, uh, that's coming. And, uh, but like, that's a good segue. I, I, I worked in uh, Boston Public Schools for um, roughly like six or seven years. So the, the second you mentioned exam schools, I have to like train myself to not talk too much about that. But if we have you for longer, I'd actually love to get your input on exam schools. But you just brought up a, a statistic that out of the city funding, only one or may, maybe equal 1.8, you said, percent of the COVID relief from the city went to a um, person of color owning that correct uh boston based boston based yeah so anyway we can get into details okay. but uh so that made me think because i know for the covid relief um already set up a similar fund for covid which raised the 32 million and he was touting that and what looks to be a response op-ed to yours um saying that you know this was a great system 32 million raised we dispersed 22 million to 300 different community nonprofits. do we know though who got what money and what that process looked like or who was awarded? So, um, in fact, along with two of my colleagues, um, counselors Julie Mejia and Ricardo Arroyo, we had submitted uh, what's called the 17F order. That's a technical name for a city council internal subpoena to the administration because that had not been public. And so a few weeks ago, we got back the information. So I have the spreadsheet, happy to share and <laughs> pass that along. It hasn't really been that would be interesting. dissected publicly mm -hmm. yet. Um, but... We have the list of who gave um, and what amounts and then who where, who received the donations and then some description of what the process was like. Because uh, th that is always part of, like I share uh, your same critique of, and you expressed it beautifully. I'm going to bring it up in one second. But basically that these funds almost sidestep a much more transparent process, which is why we have government yes. of the collection of funds and the allocation of funds. And to trans, just to sidestep it, we now are in a situation where you had to audit the mayor's office just to see who got the money. And I think, especially our viewers, can just see why that's not a good system. And, you... and in fact, I'll, you know, one thing to point out, I think I, think I mentioned it in the op-ed too, is that the normal process of oversight 
involves the city council, right, as the sort of democratically elected um, legislative side, every expenditure that the city makes supposed to flow through some oversight from the council. And so every time the city gets an external grant to do direct services, right, let's say we are taking in, um, you know, there's a bunch of different examples for the schools um, or, or for law enforcement or, or for various other, let's say FEMA gives a grant to do emergency management preparation. Before the emergency management department can actually use that money, the city council has the option to hold a hearing uh, and then we take a vote on it. But when these funds are set up, and it goes, it's just the city becomes a pass-through to nonprofits, so we're not actually spending the money technically, we're giving it to nonprofits mm -hmm. to, to disperse, that doesn't involve city council oversight at all. So we have the lack of city council oversight, we have a, I'm not gonna, I'll call the phrase a shady fund, and by that I just means it operates in secret, and we have all these pressures for nonprofits. And, and it's like private donors? Private donors, people with business with the city, all have now this <laughs> internal compulsion, or oh, I have to give Yikes. the Marty's fund, otherwise I might not get this license. And uh, my favorite sentence in your op-ed, which uh, I'm gonna try to use as a transition to our favorite topic, which is housing. Uh, you write, centralizing private funding in the hands of the mayor and his personal appointees also means consolidating power in the status quo by continuing to rely on the judgment and control of a select few who have personally benefited from these systems over decades in Boston. We could probably spend the entire hour just on that one sentence. Um, you're, you're used I had to fight to keep that in. <laughs> I went back and forth with the editors. I was like, I could defend this. <laughs> no, um, one, it's interesting to hear that the editors of the Globe are just wow. like, oh, do you want to say? It's just like, this is the mildest critique, which is very- I'm not, I'm not surprised. I mean, the, <laughs> especially some of the things that passes they muster for the globe op-eds. But uh, sparing that, you mentioned consolidating power, and we spent uh, probably two hours of that episode about the city budget really talking about the, what people seem to be the role of a city council member, and I think that might be a good ending question, but also what people's theory of power was. Mm -hmm. And what I took from this sentence is your awareness of consolidating power in a handful of people in a, trans, a secretive process is not good. And I kind of want to take that to now address, again, our favorite subject of housing, because it seems like housing in Boston is also a very secret process controlled by a select few people. And there was a number of reports that just came out, and I'm sure you know the statistics far better than I am. So in case there's anyone listening who is not familiar, can you just tell them, how is Boston doing with affordability in housing? <laughs> oh, I mean, so all of these issues were already a crisis level before COVID, but now we have just seen how stark it is. And so the, um, you know, we're talking about a tsunami of evictions coming, which will hit uh, black and brown residents far worse. Uh, we're, we're, you know, in the scale of, of tens and thousands, 20,000 evictions potentially um, after the moratorium might be lifted. We're talking about um, randomized testing of tenants based on whether uh, someone had a white sounding name or a black sounding name and the the level of discrimination that is obvious um, in in Boston's housing market private housing market we're talking about um, a city gentrifying rapidly you know multiples um, in communities of color and all of this on top of the public health crisis it's a lot. 
And I think uh, there was just a report we are the third most gentrified city in the country. As you were just saying, 70% of people of color face discrimination, just looking for housing, if you are even lucky enough to afford it. Um, however, though, we, we have the BPDA, and they are equally <laughs> confident that they can solve this. So almost comically, coincidentally, on that same Thursday that the mayor announced his big changes to combat racism in Boston, the BPTA, BPDA also announced two big changes that they're hoping to address as you said, this tsunami of evictions. I think City Life put it at maybe roughly 20,000 uh, that we're anticipating. And their big two ideas mimicked uh, what the mayor said. One was to hire a new director for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the second was to create their own fund, an equity and inclusion fund. And as part of their fund, they are saying that they will raise anywhere from $1 to $2.7 million a year to combat affordability housing. As someone who's an expert on this on housing in Boston, which I'm just going to say you are, can we solve affordability in housing with $2.7 million a year <laughs> in a fund controlled by the BPDA? All the good topics here. Um, I mean, I it's hard for me to really engage on the BPDA, uh, sort of the, the validity of their actions, the um potential effectiveness of what they do because i just think we've had such a long history of undeniable um disconnect from what residents actually want you know, I, I really believe that at the base at heart of so many of the disparities and inequities that we experience in boston is our lack of planning right we have an agency that still is technically called the Boston Redevelopment Authority, right? They underwent a very expensive rebranding a few years ago and added um, planning to their name, but they, you know, th that's their DBA. They, mm -hmm. they still are technically the BRA. They're technically un under the same power structure as they were created in the 1960s um, to gentrify communities and bring about rapid scale development. Um, our city zoning code still dates back, the base zoning code still dates back to 1965 because we are not engaging our residents in a process of understanding what the need is and then how we make trade-offs as a city through government. Instead, everything is parcel by parcel, exception by exception. And again, that's when you get into situations where when you're in the know, when government is the gatekeeper for either funds or the permits that lead to you know, profits, um, it's, it's incredibly distorting and corrupting. And so as part of that big, those big three proposals that Marty Walsh named uh, that I mentioned earlier, um, one of which was this new equity standard amendment. And I know that this is something that the city council has been working on. Yeah, you Councilor were, Edwards. Uh, you were also part of an op-ed, I think maybe mm -hmm. June 4th, it looks like, that you submitted for this. So I have some questions slash challenges to it, but I would like you to explain. Can you just share what is the equity standard amendment and why you support it? Yeah, so this is something that Lydia has been pushing for. Lydia Edwards um, has been pushing for multiple years now. Um, the federal government, I don't know, years ago now, I think under the Obama administration, um, second Obama administration, and anyway, a number of years ago, um, put forward the requirement that local housing authorities um, should be what's called AFFH, right? Affirmatively furthering fair housing. So we're looking not just at the lack of discrimination, but 
whether we are taking into account proactively furthering, affirmatively furthering fair housing. So um, the, the Boston Zoning Code does not include fair housing as a way that we are judging whether projects are, um, should be approved or, or fit um, the, the needs of communities. So this would begin the process of actually legalizing that and incorporating it into our code. And if somebody asked me, would you vote for this? I would say yes, absolutely. Like, I, I agree with you. And I, I know, you know, we have codes for environmental impact, so on and so forth. My, I wouldn't call it a criticism. My one concern, if, and I, I don't think you're saying that this is going to solve all of Boston's problems, is that, you know, I just mentioned environmental impact. We've been doing environmental impacts for decades. That has not stopped our air, our land, or our water from being polluted. And just having what I fear to be will be another just checkbox. Did you conduct a um, gentrification study? Yep. Okay. Approved. That it does not threaten or challenge the power dynamic, which yeah. is the BPDA, because they have their own pressures being in, in how our, our city raises funds. Like we have pressures to increase property value. Like we all understand that. But if it does not change who gets to make this decision, I do not think it's going to do much to actually solve housing in Boston. That's that's totally right. That's why we need to abolish the age. Perfect true... segue. Yes. <laughs> I'm just like I'm gonna try to get us to pivot. <laughs> we need a true planning department that is accountable in the same way that other city departments are accountable. We need an independent planning mission to go back to what we had before urban renewal and this sort of mass push for development um, stripped away all of those planning powers and put them into the BRA. So I think last year, I'm going to call it October. October, yeah. Uh, you released um, 70 page abolish the BPDA article. I, I reread it this weekend. It's fantastic. I read it every night before I go to bed. <laughs> this Bible. <laughs> so, but before we talk about it, because um, I've been involved in housing issues maybe just the past two years. So I I've had to have a whole education about the BPDA. Can you explain, and this is something that I, I learned a lot from reading your report. Just what is it? You talked about the rebranding, but also how it's funded, because I found that to be fascinating as well. Yeah, so, okay, I will try not to go, I will try to condense 70 pages to 30 <laughs> seconds, but a brief history is that in the 50s into 60s, all across the country, cities were setting up what are called urban renewal authorities. And the idea is that there was this sort of narrative that cities were this were uh, the place of urban decay, Folks were fleeing out into the suburbs. You know, I think if you ask a lot of the residents who were living there then, there were many multi-racial, thriving, working-class you know communities there. But um, the narrative became: we need to restore business development uh, back to city centers. And so the federal government began uh, reimbursing local municipalities 100% of um, the cost to clear entire neighborhoods, right? The city would use eminent domain, claim, take the property from residents, you know, compensate them at quote unquote fair market value, and then um, get reimbursed to level all the houses. And then private developers were reimbursed, I think it was up to 90% to build something new there. And that something new had to be according to some plan that these urban renewal authorities would, um, would approve. Boston, um, really made national headlines when our application of that turned into the West End, where we have the official count was 12,000 some families. You know, I've heard from families who lived there then it was much closer to 20,000 people um, 
low-income, working-class, multiracial immigrant families pushed out with the promise that they would be able to come back at, you know, for new housing and better, but it was, never, it was not enough and it was not affordable. And so we still look at the West End today, see all those high rises, and it, it feels very different than I think that tight-knit community that used to be there. Because of that experience, okay, sorry, I'm wrapping, I'm wrapping up the, the, no, 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 the history. Okay. Because of that experience, other cities around the country, the federal government abandoned the program, right? So the, the reimbursements were no longer available. Other cities started to disband their urban renewal authorities, and Boston actually went the other direction. So instead of taking ours down, we took down our planning board, collapsed the powers into it when Ed Logue came to Boston, right? Ed Logue is the larger-than-life figure who was responsible for the Supreme Court decision in New Haven called Kelo, which established the right for government to take private property and use it essentially for private development if you deemed it, if deemed that development as a public purpose. Mm-hmm. But previously, it had to be a truly public purpose, right? Affordable housing, open space, et cetera. So he came, kind of masterminded that um, move in Boston where we consolidated planning and development into this super agency as other cities were moving a different direction. The other big milestone along the way is that it used to rely on some city funds. So it used to go through the city council budget process mm-hmm. like other agencies. But in the 1980s, the director persuaded the city to move it off of the city budget. We're going to use our own leases, rents, um, sale, you know, profits that we get from selling BRA-owned property to self-fund. And in, so, in that way, we don't need anyone looking over our shoulder about what we're doing. Yeah, the, the funding of this organization is like the poison pill of it, because it almost is now within the interest of the agency yes. to, to do what is almost exactly the opposite of what is in the public interest. And to have that funding mechanism that, that I, I only learned from reading your report is horrendous beyond our belief. They have a very nice website. They do. They have a great website, <laughs> the BPDA. If you abolish the BPDA, just take their website. But good maps. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> something, all this data. something else I learned as part of uh, your abolish the BPDA is that their contract is coming up. I think in twenty twenty two. Twenty two, yep. And so how can we help you not renew that contract? <laughs> yeah. So okay, so to be totally clear about what this contract is, this is the state's grant of power to the agency under what are called urban renewal maps. So technically, that power accrues to the agency through these drawn-out geographic areas. And, you know, the BRA, we went through this right after I first joined the council because usually, um, oh, okay, so going back to the history, when this power was created, people knew at that time that this was extraordinary power, like to over to overstep community process, to have one agency without your votes of the city council and this and that, making these decisions. So they said, we're only granting this to you for 10 years at a time. And 10 years became, was renewed for another 10, another 10, and all of a sudden we were at um, 2016 or so. Um, maybe it was 2015, and then they extended for one more year. So then in 2016, the council said, we're not doing another 10 years. At that point, it felt kind of like the budget process where they said, you know, there's, it's too late. If we don't renew, the, world, the sky will fall because every contract that we have put out there will dissolve if these powers dissolve. And so all the protections for affordable housing, this and that. Mm-hmm. And we don't have an inventory, so we don't even know what contracts are out there. So we kind of said the compromise is six years. 
and there are milestones along the way. In the, in the first two years, you need to finish the inventory of what contracts are out there. Mm -hmm. By year three, you need to figure out what you're going to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So now we're up to 2022. Um, and to be honest, it's hard because the council changes over mm -hmm. every two years, right? So there aren't that many people who were around in that first round. You know, I'm now the third most senior counselor having been elected in 2013. So I think it's really tying what these powers are to where the city wants to go and that fundamentally Boston's issues are not about lack of funding, about lack of ideas. It comes down to power sharing and who gets to be at the table and the BRA represents a closing of those doors and we will never get to true community engagement while they are in charge. So if I understand correctly, so if, if you, let's say that this inventorying of the housing and the affordable housing and all that stuff happens, um, that's like a data transfer, right? To some other system. Do you, do you, I don't want to say have a replacement for the BPDA, but like what would, if, if let's say we could abolish the BPDA with this, ideally all this trans, this knowledge transfer that's been gone haywire over the years, what would you see as a better solution? Yeah, so, you know, I think this issue has come up again and again and again, and oftentimes the conclusion will be, this is too hard because the state has to do it for us, and, you know, it's going to be just too many steps, so we're not going to do it. Why I really wanted to do that report was to demonstrate how far we could go just at the city level without involving the state. So tomorrow, or at the next meeting of the, the BPDA, the current board members could take a vote to transfer all the property that they own instead of the city back to the city of Boston, back to the tr sort of city books. That property would immediately start generating funding to pay for a city planning department. Because right now they say, you know, well, where would planning go? Because we pay for it all. But you give us back the assets, we'll have the money right. to, to right. do the planning and to have it subject to oversight. The planning department then starts to work with community to do a true citywide master plan. We've not done one since 1965. Mm -hmm. Imagine Boston 2030 is not a citywide master plan. <laughs> it did not change zoning. It's like a vision board. <laughs> I, I've read it a few times trying to understand like it's what a, measurements they're looking for, and it's more of like, it's a park. It's a Pinterest. <laughs> it's, a, it's a Pinterest page for the city of Boston. Yeah, and, and it falls so short from where we could be. I mean, one statistic that I just really hold on to that was in the report also is that we kind of, the city kind of brags that uh, 15,000 people were engaged through the Imagine Boston 2030 process. When Indianapolis, they're only a little bit bigger than us population wise, but they had 100,000 people participate in their citywide master planning process. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the level that we should aspire to of who we're talking to about their dreams for Boston, their needs, um, and how all of that should fit together. Once we have a, a, a master plan, that changes zoning. A lot of the city would maybe have higher zoning, so there wouldn't be this constant negotiation with every developer. Um, it needs to happen. You know, any sort of upzoning needs to happen with rent control and rent stabilization. We're not just ushering in this flow of gentrification. And then we get to a point where we are um, holding everyone accountable to that new zoning code. And I'll say whatever takes its place, and I really hope the Boston City Council, for whoever's in power for 2022, stays with this uh, vision of abolishing the BPDA. Because what my concerns are when I hear things like, we just hired a new director of inclusion, and <laughs> now we have this amendment where we're going to study gentrification. 
can we have another 10 years? And it, it needs to be just going back to uh, one of the themes of last episode and from your op-ed, the power structure. You cannot have the centralized power of a group of people. I can't name you who's on the BPDA. And this is all I do. And so to try to expect like the regular uh, people of Boston who have to work 70 hours a week to make it through to know who to target is just obscene. So, I mean, I can name all the developers on this. Well, I, I, I know some of the billionaires <laughs> who are trying to uh, invest in Dorchester, for example. Yeah. But, but it's also, I mean, I, I think it's also important to note that most developers would also benefit from moving away from the current system, right? There's a very, very small handful of well-connected, well-networked developers who are able to get more than they probably should in the system. And everyone else, even on the developer side, gets screwed. Mm -hmm. So this is about moving to something that is consistent, fair across the board, and really reflects what people need. When we ask residents to participate at the very end of the process, when there's really not much participation left, it's stressful. It's a waste of people's time. It's frustrating. And it doesn't get us to the outcomes it's we need. It's naming a park while there's <laughs> like, you know, maybe 10% of units that are still above the income level for yeah. that particular We're going to get some great statues. Yeah, so we're going to get a, a statue in a park. But um, <laughs> as we talk about maybe getting rid of one institution, um, let's talk about possibly defunding another one. Oh, my, yeah. Which is my segue to the uh, Boston Police Department. So, my favorite. Something that um, also came with this new the budget that was submitted was a $12 million reduction of the overtime budget. Something that I'm frustrated on is... The concentration on the overtime budget because and please correct me if i'm wrong the police can go over the overtime budget and they still get their paychecks legally yep and so to take money from that kitty that pot all boston police know that that pot is is limitless and so take the money from there also it's a bit of a rhetorical trick because 20 percent that sounds like a good chunk but my understanding is the overtime budget 60 million the police budget is 414, which means combining those numbers is 400. No, so this, I okay. wanted to point this out because you said this in the last episode too. And okay. I wanted to be like, that's the only one thing. <laughs> okay. Technically inside. Okay, it so, is. And that's only a, a couple years um, of practice because it used to be that overtime was not accounted for. In the, it's sort of random to, you know, kind of counterintuitive to see overtime inside, a budgeted overtime, okay. right? But because it had just run way over, you know, tens of millions of dollars over budget every single year, the goal was, well, if there's a specific line item, then it will, you know, maybe this will rein in, it will create more pressure to measure it properly, to manage it properly, but it still runs over even the line item. And that throws off my fractions a little bit, but another way of saying 20% of the OT budget, just doing some quick math here, that only equals 3%. 12 million of the total budget. And in fact, of the 12, two is redirected within BPD. So it's really just 10. I mean, not to <laughs> mess up your numbers even more, but 10 leaving BPD. So uh, the big concession was 2.8% of the police budget, which they get anyway. So we got um, $10 million to some social services. And so I, I just wanted to point that out because I really want people, when they talk about this, to talk about the whole budget. And we should not be obsessing about the overtime budget. And um, hit me, Lauren, because I know you had questions about the police as well. Ugh. But that does kind of bring us to uh, the next question, which is how hard it's been for city council members to even talk about the Boston Police Department in anything but a negative light. And many council members have accepted campaign donations from the Boston uh, Police Union, uh, yourself being one of them. Do you con 
plan to continue taking don donations or would you like to speak to that? Yeah, so I have in my seven years now in the council received three donated. We went back through all of our records scouring <laughs> very carefully. So I've gotten three contributions from police unions in that time totaling uh, I think it was $1,250. And for me, I'm clear every single day. I'm leading based on my values. I'm not affected by contributions that I get. And you know, often I'm taking positions that I'm sure um, various entities giving contributions would disagree with. And sometimes there is pressure just to give to someone they think is going to be in office. Mm -hmm. um, and then that person is able to you know, run the campaign and do, you know, use the funding to support community organizations, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, I'm not, I'm 100% I'm clear, I'm never influenced by campaign money, et cetera. But this moment is one, I mean, this issue drove the entire council budget discussion. This is the, the issue, not just of what sort of law enforcement we, we want to have, how we want to make people feel safe, but also how much we can trust our government. And for me, that is more fundamental than anything else. Of I want my constituents to know that there's no question whose side I'm on and when I am taking action for constituents rather than special interests. So I am you know, fully committed to not taking any more police union contributions moving forward. This is important for me. Again, not that it was influencing mm -hmm. me anyway, but to put trust first and foremost, and to make sure that constituents know that that is something that I, I truly value. Sorry, um, <laughs> I want to get there because uh, not that I don't want to say I'm not trying to be negative. I do have a slight bone to pick about last year because I was um, assaulted at straight by, pride by police officers as well as many of my friends, air gas, pepper sprayed. And I felt that as, along with a lot of people that I was there with that you were um, quite silent on the issue and i want to know have you those tapes and and have you you know maybe i haven't paint, maybe you've spoke out on it since but i do recall a lot of us being like wow michelle Wu's like kind of back in the cops here after like we're like you know getting our legs you know like <laughs> hurt and getting arrested and everything have you reviewed those videos and have you sort of come to a different conclusion about police violence against, pro against protesters because I am an avid protester who often a subject of police violence. Yeah, I've had many, many conversations since then and mm -hmm. sat down with activists who were there and people who received emails from family members of, of those who came home with concussions, knocked down, you know, unprovoked. And so um, I think for me, it was just a really big lesson of like, I wasn't there. Right. And one, I should, I, I should have been there, right? I probably should have been there. I went, eh, it wasn't that, um, it wasn't that nice. <laughs> I, I, you know, that, that day I actually, I actually was very sick and was like in bed yep. and so missed out on following it in, in real time, I think. And then, so going back and trying to figure out what happened and not having the right um, sort of scale of conversations. I just like, I go back to a place where um, I feel leaders need to first and foremost experience or at least um stand with people who are experiencing it on the ground and that was just a very big lesson for me that like okay i totally misread that situation yeah that's understandable it was also an extreme situation because there were um a lot of i don't know if boston city council is in control of the situation where a ton of other police from out of the city 
were there like is that something that you guys can have control over like can you please not call in like salem police department for a protest next time? yeah so i you know part of um the recent analysis that i've been pushing with um is to get those information uh, get get the specific details on how many times those what, what are called metro law enforcement councils right. are deployed because they're often you know for I, you know, we can have, again, a conversation about what training means and all of that, but yeah. um, it is a very different experience to come in from outside the city mm -hmm. and usually in full gear um, and see their role as very differently than our our Boston police. So we need to go through those records much more closely, but when that happens, it is, um, there's just such a higher risk of of conflict and harm and and frankly loss of life you know that we know the data shows that more heavily militarized police departments are more likely to kill civilians that that's just the bottom line yeah. and so as we move towards um how we demilitarize boston police that is not just about equipment and our own tactics and how you know the swat team etc has been deployed but when we are partnering with these outside entities interesting and also uh just just to clarify did you just take the good no cop money pledge yeah yes. <laughs> hell yeah all right mike connelly be happy to hear about that he's always asking what's going on with that um even though he's not really boston and um, no cop money I, i'm very cognizant of the time and we and we have to go with the police union contracts that are coming up so took the words uh, out of my mouth okay. Evan. well I, I said it hit me you just airing this i didn't know what that meant <laughs> so it's like jumping at the questions here <laughs> so um we have the four major police union contracts are all up uh, it's my understanding that they are currently in negotiations with the mayor's office and that new contract will be submitted and it needs to be approved by the Boston City Council. Is that correct? So, again, we're responsible for funding. So we could technically, we don't get to, to say like, yes, this is what the contract's going to be or no. But we could say we're not going to provide the funding to back up the amount that you've agreed on with the contracting, assuming they come to agreement. The place where the council has more direct involvement um, is if they don't come to agreement because for our public safety unions since they are legally not allowed to go on strike they go to arbitration instead when they don't come to terms um, and then that arbitrator's decision comes back to the council for review so i anticipate and i'm sure you do too possibly that they will reach an agreement the mayor's office and, the and so what will be submitted to you, as you just outlined, um, and again, please correct me, is that the city council vote on that is not so much as to the union contract, the letters written, but the funding for it, which still gives power. Yes, for me, yes. For me, I would rather have yep. power over the budget than the actual uh, letters and words. So what are you looking for in this police union contract? What do you plan to do in this question <laughs> uh, once you receive it? Meaning how, what will educate your decision about whether or not to award that funding yeah so i guess i w i want to back up and just say that when we are having conversations about funding for the police department as a whole and, and and defunding the police department as a whole it is largely it boils down to positions and personnel you know 95 plus percent of the funding for the department is or costs associated with salaries, wages, benefits, people, positions. And then there's some, you know, a little on top of that for equipment that is also contractually defined. So 
except for overtime, you know, which is kind of sort of imaginary uh, line <laughs> item. If we were to say we're going to defund the non-overtime parts of the budget mm-hmm. by 15%, we are talking about reducing positions. So the question for the contracts is, you know, that is the vehicle for how to do that. And there are a couple ways to do that. One is to really define what the role of law enforcement should be in our in our city. Um, there's an ordinance on the table that I've introduced with Councilor Edwards and Councilor Mejia about alternative 911, um, so diverting nonviolent calls to an unarmed, trained crisis response system. There are also many positions in the police department that could be civilianized that uh, police sworn officers are performing and, and you know, questions about where resources are going. Um, uh, conversations about overtime and and when it is legally mandated to be how much right so right now if you set foot in a courtroom whether or not your case ends up being heard as that police officer you you you're taking that four hours of overtime and if you only end up using 15 minutes of that time that you blocked off you're actually legally allowed to then turn around and go work a paid detail for the rest of the three hours or whatever it is. so there's lots of places um, you know, thinking about the paid details that are that are given out to officers and um, the structure of that relative to the city. Right now, the city fronts the money, so we pay the officers directly, and the whoever the developer, whoever it is who is requesting it, is supposed to pay back the city. To, you know, to afterwards, but that doesn't. You know, we don't. We're not looking. We're not asking all the time whether whether all that money comes back to us. So there are lots of places within the budget that. Um, need to be first analyzed and publicly, and then how do we move to a system where we are putting people in the right departments and in the right roles to truly keep people safe? Um, couple follow-up questions on that. Let me start with, have you got a brick representative to your city council hearings yet? One came to the face surveillance ban here. Okay, okay, okay. Because I, I just remember them not showing up. They didn't come to the grant hearing. Okay, and I and was... the follow up has not been scheduled yet. Okay, all right. And then, what do you expect to come of, of the Boston contracts? Like, do you, do you think there's going to be any change? Like, what do you? I mean, good or bad? Like, what what do you expect that you know you can actually get done with this, or that people can actually get done? So because there's a lot of things you just mentioned that. Great, I know, but. I know. It's it's and it's difficult when the council doesn't even have a window into into sort of what's happening in real time. Um, so a, a number of my colleagues are standing, uh, putting putting out. They've they filed a hearing order. I don't remember the exact names. I know Kenzie Bach is involved with it. Maybe it was Andrea Campbell and it was Matt O'Malley. I can't remember. But a, a batch of colleagues has said we are going to hold hearings. So. While this is ongoing, we're going to try to have conversations. You know, I, I sh- you know, again, in my six years on the council, I know we, we get a lot of answers of we'll get back to you or uh, we can't share that information right now. So um, it's good to keep the, mic- the, the sort of public attention on. I think there should be more call for the administration to say what they are trying, you know, what are the targets that they're going for? That's not the, uh, it doesn't break any confidentiality, you know, the, we should know what the, the goals are and, and what success would look like for the mayor and the administration. And then, you know, there's a national conversation now about what should be on the bargaining table with police unions. Should discipline even be allowed to be bargained over? Um, or should it be just 
focus on wages and benefits like other um, other unions are able to focus on. And so what will happen in my dream scenario, and we'll fill in the gap in between in a second, what will happen if the Boston City Council votes no on allocating the budget for these new police unions? What happens? What, what is the next step? Huh. Um... <laughs> <laughs> That's never happened, I so never we don't know. know. <laughs> so, okay, I imagine that this is all contractually okay so assuming they came to agreement and it didn't go to an arbitrator and we're just responsible for funding that amount the council votes it down it could come out i mean the previously okay so okay i figured out so what happens is when new contracts are adjusted the um existing budget is based on what the contract the previous contract said so oftentimes we'll have these adjustments where the amount that is extra, right? So if it's a 2% cost of living or whatever it is, that comes out of a fund called um, collective bargaining reserves. So some amount is set in, set aside there to, for the uncertainty of what might come out of it. So the council's vote is on allocating that additional amount. Um, if that is not approved, you know, it might just be frozen at the previous level until litigation happens or, or something gets worked out, but it's not as if we're sort of breaking everything down to okay. zero and starting over. Because um, as you just outlined and as you were expressing it, I, I kind of think what will end up happening, which is they are going to do, of course, what is it going to be a very police-friendly uh, union contract that has one or two slight concessions on very minuscule things that really won't affect anything. But if you voted no for it, it would just go back to the previous union contract. And so from their perspective, it's basically a win-win. They either get to do a symbolic new to address, oh, now we're going to ask permission before we choke somebody out or, or whatever. <laughs> Bigger ends up cages, saying. longer chains. And, um, so they, they will win regardless of this. So that's why it's so important to ongoing, um, in parallel, have the legislative conversation too. Mm -hmm. And so everything that's happening at the state right now, the mm -hmm. state Senate today, I don't even yeah, know. Yeah, look to see talking about qualified out. immunity. The last message I got, they have 66 amendments left to continue <laughs> debate. And that was about an hour ago. Before okay. Um, so, you know, it, it's qualified immunity yep. in the Senate bill, but it's also four items that the Black and Latino Caucus had been pushing around post, right, certification and decertification, um, use of force, um, Shout out to Rep. Liz Miranda for an incredible um, effort to, to really put a comprehensive bill together. That would change the dynamics of what we're talking about. And then at the city level, passing an ordinance like this 911 diversion as a first step towards redefining roles and moving forward with a civilian review board. Um, these are ways that we start to kind of narrow the scope of what happened, what, you know, what the question marks are around the budget and the contract. One of the big things we hear about the powers of the Boston City Council as the budget vote, we're not going to believe that anymore, is that you get to use the office as like a platform to kind of like highlight some issues. So after speaking with you, you know, normally I was going to encourage no matter what they submit to you, you won't, not going to happen, unfortunately, with the current makeup of the Boston City Council, but you vote no as if that would cause some sort of a penalty after listening to you. It's possible that that will not be a penalty for it. But I think another good use of the office and my um, district council member is Frank Baker. So I really don't get to have these type of conversations with them <laughs> as I do with you. Is to meet with groups like Muslims United for Justice, FTP, Black Lives Matter, Violence in Boston, everyone else, and say, here's the horrible contract the mayor just gave us. What would you have wanted the contract to be? And to really look at what the people's contract with the Boston unions would have looked like. 
and then using that as a platform to say, here was Marty's vision for police in Boston, here's the people, and using that as a microphone. So if we don't get to control the budget in the way that I was hoping, at least shaming the current system. Um, that was all the questions I had in my little journey. I can keep going for like another two hours. It's, you um, can keep going for another two because, hours. Because you mentioned schools. Right, but uh, last question. All right, let's get into school stuff. <laughs> no, uh, very quickly. Uh, as long as you're not, I'm waiting for uh, your oh, person okay. to come banging at the door. Uh, I have three minutes. Three minutes. Okay. What is your position on exam schools in Boston? I think exam schools and the structure of our high schools is the question that determines whether there's equity in the district. I think the focus on how we allocate a few seats, it, you know, we need, we need equity in every, every bit of every corner of, of, you know, institutions, contracts, budgets, et cetera. But what we don't spend nearly enough time talking about are the thousands of other students that are not at the exam schools. And so when we are structurally grouping you know, a quarter of students into the exam schools, another third into more selective admission pilot schools, and then concentrating our other students, um, many of whom are students with disabilities or English language learners, new arrivals to the district, in a, a limited number of very large comprehensive high schools without the resources to and, and not the appropriate metrics to judge success. It, it's just we're essentially throwing away thousands of our students every year. And so structurally, this is, this is what we need to solve. How do we make sure that it's not just a conversation every year about allocating a few seats in the most fair way or the least painful way because we're, by doing so, acknowledging that the rest of the seats are not those quality mm -hmm. seats. Uh, so anyway, have... <laughs> uh, I, I won't demand a yes or a no, but my, um, my, my, my comment um, as a uh, former educator is exam schools should be abolished and should not exist. It, it is a solution to a problem of cities when you have rich people living in close proximity to poor people. And how do you have a public school program that will keep them segregated and a way of doing that is to have an exam test because of all the natural benefits that come from wealth will and we see this in all of the um racial breakdowns class breakdowns of exam schools like boston latin is that it is a way of weeding out so that the rich elite of one area do not have to actually go to school with the people who live two miles away well we're in a real test this year i think for the for the district because nationally even universities and those who typically administer standardized tests, right? So all sorts of questions about the effectiveness, et cetera. But even those systems have said, we recognize the depth of trauma that our students are experiencing mm -hmm. and how disproportionately this pandemic has affected students of color. So we are suspending the SAT. We're not using that this year. And so for Boston, not to take that similar, very small, um, step to mm -hmm. recognize the the depth of inequity that we would be perpetuating is I, I think there's still time to to change that decision but um i'm pushing strong standing strongly with community organizations and advocates who are calling for that not to happen this year yeah that would that would be a big win if yeah how about like and i mean i'll take it with covid <laughs> if they can suspend it for just this year but um we're one minute over at eight 
So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We got so much information out of you. I'm not going to ask you that obvious question that everybody's told me not to ask. So maybe another time. (laughs) But um, you did a great job. We got a lot of answers. And we would love to have you back on in the future. Yeah, that'd be great. And um, keep us posted on everything Boston City Council. You've been kind of leading the charge lately, which we appreciate. What you both. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I know we're still live right now. I'm going to. Are we just going to. Let's just sign off. I'm going to sign off, all right? This was Renters Radio Boston. Uh, Like, subscribe, follow us. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Twitch, Twitchtagram, YouTube Stan. I don't know. We're Renters Radio everywhere. You can also like and subscribe, follow our podcast. We'll be releasing the show tomorrow. If you have questions, comments, uh, suggestions, reach out, uh, concerns, you want to get mad at me, you want to get mad at him, you want to get mad at her, Feel free to DM me. Feel free to email me, uh, rentersradio at gmail.com. Also, we're on all the social media, like I said. If you want to send us money, you can also send money to the Patreon. (laughs) I haven't checked it in a while, but we're patreon.com slash rentersradio. I don't have a job. I could sure use it. (laughs) Anyway, take care, everyone. Have a great night. This was Renters Radio with Boston City Councilor Michelle Wu. Later.